This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Paying attention to the historical context ought to help us understand better what the spiritual point or application uh, that we receive from it should be. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm joined by James Dolezal. As always, James, good to see you. Good to be here. We are also glad to have with us Dr. Keith Stanglin. He is professor of scripture and historical theology at Austin Graduate School of Theology. And he's written a book on the history of biblical interpretation. And in the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, one of the things that we always say to people is we we want to help them think and act biblically, and that involves knowing and understanding the Bible. His book is entitled The Letter and Spirit of Biblical Interpretation from the Early Church to Modern Practice. Dr. Stanglin, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Most of our listeners aren't scholars, but they're generally interested in understanding the Bible and the history of interpretation I know this this book is is a great handbook on the history of the interpretation of the Bible. Why would you say that it's important to understand the history of the interpretation of the Bible in order to read the Bible well, to be be a good reader? Yeah, well, uh, part of that has to do with just in general why it's good as a Christian to have historical perspective in general. Um, I would certainly recommend having that historical perspective for any doctrinal or moral questions that we encounter in our life of faith. So having invited our, we might say, spiritual ancestors to the table in other matters, uh, I think that that is an appropriate thing to do also when we approach scripture, that is to ask, how did people before us interpret scripture? How did they apply it? Might there be something for us to learn, not just from modern commentaries that we might consult or from our uh, community of faith, our ministers and others? Those are good sources, um, but we shouldn't marginalize the 18, 1900 years of Christians who've come before us who have studied scripture very intensely, often have Uh, known the contents of Scripture better than most of us uh, nowadays know it, and have wrestled with some of the same questions, Uh, we shouldn't also ignore what they have to say. So uh, that's an important thing I want to get across, um, that there's a different perspective there on reading Scripture uh, that might challenge our own, people from very different uh, time and place and culture. So, yeah, yeah, those are, uh, I think, important points that would recommend the study of how people before us have interpreted scripture. When we ask those earlier Christians how it was that they read the Bible, um, we find that they give us some answers and some approaches that may not be familiar to modern readers of scripture. And in your book, you outline uh, the exegesis and the interpretive practices of the uh, earliest Christians and the church fathers, the the medieval interpreters, and even even modern interpreters. What are, particularly with regard to the pre-modern interpreters, what are some of the ways that they approach the Bible differently perhaps than we do? And um, why do we need to listen to them? I think the main way I would summarize the different approach is that pre-modern folks 
tended to see in scripture um, multiple levels of uh, instruction and thus they interpreted it on multiple levels. So whereas modern interpreters tend to look at scripture um, only on one level and we tend to reduce meaning to the intent of the human author. Well, pre-moderns were also interested in what the human author intended to write, but they didn't think scripture as an inspired uh, document, as an inspired set of writings, is limited to simply what the human author believed, that there is a, a deeper meaning to it, that if a narrative, for example, um, is there in scripture, there may be something more lying underneath the surface. So, I mean, that's probably the main difference. They would ask questions of scripture that I think are truer to the uh, intent of scripture. And that is, as Second Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, scripture is intended to teach us in doctrine and in morals, among other things. And so they would approach scripture looking to get out of it some sort of spiritual lesson, some spiritual point or edification, instruction in faith and morals. So whether it's um, early church or in the medieval period, they would ask questions like, what should we believe? What doctrine do we learn from this passage? What um, moral instruction do we receive? What should we hope for as a result of what we read in this passage? Uh, so they were concerned about authorial intent, but did not reduce the meaning to that. Okay. And I think sometimes we we tend to play those against each other so that if perhaps we're going for some moral instruction, or as you said, um, for what are we to hope, uh, the old anagogical approach, mm -hmm. um, that perhaps if we're going to take that approach, that we necessarily have to eclipse original context authorship audience and yet as you're pointing out they did not they did not leave aside the literal when they were pursuing these other layers of uh of um interpretation and understanding of the scripture how would you how would you say in terms of in terms of our sort of modern fascination with the historic critical reconstruction of the exact sort of occasion of the of the writing of scripture how does that fit in and how does that, in a certain sense, maybe undermine uh, what earlier Christians were doing? In ways, certainly it helps. And one of the things I want to do in the book is to say that these two approaches, let's say pre-modern and modern, need not be irreconcilable. When each is pushed to its extreme, then these do seem to be two totally separate ways of approaching scripture that uh, never meet, never have anything to do with each other. But paying attention to the historical context ought to help us understand better what the spiritual point or application that we receive from it should be. For instance, if we read Isaiah chapter 7, the story that is uh, quoted, verse 14 in Matthew chapter 1, about the young woman uh, conceiving and giving birth to a son, Emmanuel. If we simply skip over the 8th century BC context of that and think of this as a straight line prophecy of Jesus, we're going to miss, more likely miss, what's going on in the context of Isaiah chapter 7. 
which is the context of an impending war of King Ahaz being upset and making a lot of preparations for that war, Isaiah coming and offering him a sign that in the midst of all of this trouble, God is going to be with his people. Um, There will be a child that is born uh, here very shortly, and before he's of a certain age, peace will come to the land and you will be protected. Well, once you understand that, then it makes so much more sense when you read in Matthew chapter 1 that Jesus is the even better fulfillment of Emmanuel, that in the midst of the trouble and the hardship, God is with his people, as Isaiah makes clear, both for redemption and for those who reject him for judgment and for punishment. So I think there are ways, yeah, that the historical context can help us see the spiritual point and the fuller meaning that, in, in this case, the New Testament clearly intends for it. I mean, in other ways, the historical critical method, as I say, when it goes to an extreme, I think can distract us from what should be the spiritual point we're getting from the biblical document that we're looking at. One example I give in the book that I believe Gerald Bray brought up in one of his books first, in the Song of Songs, verse 2 of chapter 1, first raises this word kiss. And if you look at a typical historical critical commentary, in this case, the Anchor Bible on Song of Songs, you get this long description of what a kiss is, definition of kiss, all of the philological um, and cognate languages and what they have to say about kiss. You sort of lose a sense of what's going on in the text of what the word kiss, which I think can go without definition. Most people know what a kiss is. Um, You end up losing the affective point there, which is to say the spiritual point also, especially if we are to interpret this ultimately as the relationship between Christ and his people. Or, I mean, I could point to a, a number of examples where the historical critical method actually becomes more speculative and distracting from the spiritual point than if we just, uh, let's say, take a chastened historical critical method, learn from its best and most assured results. But when we start talking about Q, and not just Q, but let's say the multiple layers of this hypothetical document, and we have a concordance for it, and then we use that as an agenda now to say that the earliest gospels and sources did not emphasize the death and resurrection of Jesus. All of these layers stack on to what are really very speculative possibilities, but not even probabilities. Dr. Stanglin, one of the threads that runs through every era, and you you highlight this at the end of your book, is the need for us to be virtuous interpreters. In other words, Reading the Bible is about more than just technique. It's about being a certain kind of person. And I think that might be a good way for us to finish out our conversation. I wonder if you could elaborate on this. What kind of people do we need to be to approach the Bible in the way that it ought to be approached? Yeah, this is, I think, one of the important points of difference between the pre-modern and modern approaches. Um, Once exegesis of scripture kind of came to be seen as a science, then it didn't really matter anymore what kind of person we were talking about. Um, And that is how it is still, at least in academic circles, of interpreting scripture. 
the idea that an atheist can interpret scripture as well as, in some ways, even they would say, I think, better than a Christian. Better because they're more supposedly more objective about it. They don't have this faith commitment, but they're studying scriptures, as I said, as a science. And once you discern the authorial intent, that's uh, really the best way to read scripture. Well, all pre-modern interpreters said, no, uh, scripture is a book by the church, for the church. It ought to be interpreted in the church, um, in a churchly context and uh, by people who are seeking to get out of Scripture what it is that we are supposed to get out of it. And that is, again, instruction in doctrine and morals, ultimately for the purpose of being pointed to God of, and, of course, of union with God. Well, only the pure in heart want that. And so it is important to realize what we're bringing to scripture, what we're seeking to get out of this encounter with God's word will probably influence what we do end up getting out of it. And so scripture, I think itself anticipates humble readers, people who are uh, seeking God, people who are seeking answers to an instruction in faith and morals. Dr. Stangland, thank you for joining us today, and thank you for your work. I think that's an appropriate note uh, on which we can end this conversation. The book, again, is entitled The Letter and Spirit of Biblical Interpretation from the Early Church to Modern Practice. So thanks so much for your time. Thank you for the conversation. So, James, just to give a little uh, insight to our listeners into the kind of book this is. This, to me, is a handbook uh, the, uh, the kind of thing that could be used as, a, as an overall introduction to the history of biblical interpretation. I found it to be a very helpful book, but it's hard to distill into a 12-minute interview. There were a lot of things that I wanted to probe more deeply. I, I wanted to talk to him a little bit more about his exact definition of allegory and what the use of that might be today. S some people find that a very scary idea. What were some of the things that you felt needed to be explored more or, or unpacked a little bit uh, from, from what he does here in the book. Right. I, I think in particular, it is just his commendation that we, we aren't just out of sort of historical deference listening to the past, but we're listening to the past because we actually think that the past has something to tell us about how we should approach our Bibles today. And I, I take it that that's his overall project of saying, look, of course there are excesses. We can turn to any number of commentary, ancient pre-modern commentaries, I suppose, and find uh, places of interpretation where perhaps it's just a little too exotic. Yeah, he, call, uh, he calls it allegory unbridled. Okay, allegory unbridled. And I think those are the easy things to point to and say, look, look how this interpretation is just too exotic and off the rails to be plausible. And I think what he does is remind us that um, excesses of allegorical interpretation are not a strike against the validity of allegorical interpretation. As he mentioned, a chastened historical critical approach uh, should be coupled perhaps with a chastened allegorical approach, but they should not be seen as necessarily the enemy of each other. And I, 
I think he's responding to what perhaps a lot of us found to be kind of normative in our theological training, which was um, the way that you understand the text is by A, locating authorial intent, uh, and that usually meant human authorial intent, Yeah. then the original audience, try to reconstruct that as best you can, and therein lies all horizons of meaning. Right, and I think that the key term you used there, and I noticed that he used it almost right at the beginning of his description of the book, is human authorial intent. He said, I think, that one of the main features of pre-modern exegesis of the Bible was that they recognized that there was a divine author. So, it's if there's a divine author, then it's not inappropriate to make connections between texts because right. there's one author. And so, it may be that Isaiah didn't live to see this, but nonetheless, the Lord was the overarching author of all of Scripture. And to see a horizon of meaning and intention that exceeds that of the original author or human author yep. or the ability of that original audience to understand that and to see that the Bible actually has this texture that is richer than it would have if every text were simply and only circumscribed by the intentionality of the human instrument writing it. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think that's one of his main points. And then I think the other one, which thankfully we did have the time to talk about was the idea of virtue, that you you, you need to have a certain approach to the Bible. I, I thought of Isaiah 66 where he says, to this one I will look, the one who is humble and contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. That's hmm. not, trembling at the word of God is not the same thing as doing an experiment on it clinically and objectively. Right. And it also goes to the question of whether there is such a thing as um, objective sure. biblical interpretation in that if this is the living and active word of God, and if this is intended by God for the purpose of encouraging us and building us up in the faith and pointing us to our hope in Christ Jesus, that if we don't come to the text with the expectation that it's doing this and that this is that this is a, a magnificent feature of its operation, then in a certain sense, we aren't being objective because we are sort of subjectively ruling out one of the objective truths about the Bible. Um, so I, I think he challenges, I think he challenges that uh, very clearly in a way that's fruitful. I agree. Now, some of you may be interested in owning a copy of this book and we'll give one away on the website placefortruth.org. If you go there and click on the Theology on the Go link and then click for the uh, possibility of winning a copy of this, you may get a free copy of the letter and spirit of biblical interpretation from the early church to modern practice. Others of you may want to pick this up. It's probably not a book for everyone that everyone's going to find equally interesting. It is written at a somewhat scholarly level, but I think... Um, there are insights in here that are well worth exploring. And, and I think it's a good overview of the history of biblical interpretation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Theology on the Go. We always want to remind you that we couldn't do this without the support of listeners like you. So if you're able to give, if you'd like to give, you can do that any number of ways, but the easiest ones I think are on the website, alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org. Both have a donate button you can donate there. We'd also love it if you recommended this podcast to friends of yours, family members who might find it helpful. And if you have suggestions or pushback or anything that you might uh, think would be helpful in improving the podcast, please send them to us. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks as always for listening to Theology on the Go, 
a brief interview about an eternal truth.